Hello, everybody, and even if you don't have a body, welcome back to Love the System, an integral stage interview series devoted to procedures, protocols, collective intelligence, politics, partnerships, and preparations. I'm Layman Pascal, and as you might know, partnerships and preparations have been on my mind a lot lately. I've started a project, barely more than a seedling, called Ontario Depth Adaptation. Let me explain a little bit about that briefly. Ontario is the Canadian province in which I currently live. And this project, wherever you live, is about thinking bioregionally, about being universal in a particular area. Who can you actually count on if the grid goes down? Who's facing roughly similar ecological and political realities to you? Who are you stuck with if the borders close for a long time? So insert your own region when I say Ontario, but make sure you're really thinking about where you actually live and not just about nations and humanity in general and the planetary mind space of your online peers. And the other part of the name is depth adaptation. Now, there's something called deep adaptation, which is a process of communities coming together to have deep discussions about how to prepare for disruptions and the unknown, what can be prevented, what can't, what do we most want to preserve, how do we gracefully change and lose things, really rough and beautiful and important conversations. And I've changed it to depth because I specifically want to preserve Meta-level thinkers, integrative pluralists, developmentalists, big picture, big history makers, uh, collaborative transperspectival innovators, Game B, the liminal web, everybody who's putting new science and new spirit together in new ways. That's the depth-oriented community, which should, in my view, be spending at least half of their intellectual time trying to set up real projects and real partnerships pertinent to thriving in multiple local conditions and futures. What kind of metamodernism do we have if a solar flare takes down the internets? What will the science-friendly, socially concerned, non-dual mystics be doing when the ocean methane fills the air or autonomous drone swarms come at us or uh, choking smoke from our mismanaged forests shrouds us all? So that's where I've been thinking, and I'm calling it Ontario Depth Adaptation. It's a rooted cosmo-localism, so to speak. And when I heard about a woman from Ontario, loosely associated with Game B, involved in community and emergency resilience projects, I thought, this is exactly the kind of thing I've been saying. So I seized upon, if that's the correct metaphor, the opportunity to talk with Charlotte and Sophie about the Thrive Spring project, and maybe also about the gap between philosophy and resilience efforts, about the promise and pitfalls of human beings facing disruption, and what I might call the mindfulness of preparedness. So it's wonderful to have you both here, and maybe you could each introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about how you started collaborating. We'll start with Charlotte. Sure. Thank you for having us. Um, so my name is Charlotte, and I came up with this idea for Thrive Spring uh, quite a few years ago. And there's been a couple of attempts at it um, that didn't quite work out, but now it's uh, it's it's working out because we found a really good developer. So I've had an interest in emergency preparedness for a very long time. And from that grew an interest in community resilience because um, I realized that it doesn't really make sense just just focus on being prepared for you and your family if your neighbors are not prepared um, and if your whole entire community isn't somewhat resilient. And so and I, and it, I also realized that it makes a lot of sense to um, if, if you're prepared on an individual level, that also helps your community because it means that you can then go and be helping your neighbors if something, if something were to happen. So I had this idea and I, I realized that it would make a lot of sense if we could create uh, an online platform where people could get connected with other people who had similar ideas about individual and community resilience. 
Um, so that is basically what we've built with ThriveSpring. And uh, Sophie is my, my co-founder. And um, she has more of an education and, and uh, professional experience in, in emergency management. So I studied emergency management, but I've only been involved as a volunteer with different groups. Um, but Sophie has more of a professional background in that area. So do you want to go ahead? <laughs> sure. Thank you. Um, thank you for having us here as well. My, um, as Charlotte said, my academic background um, is around environmental management, climate change, disaster management and I'm really interested in in kind of what ties them together and the um the human focused um elements of that and uh, we met many years ago um, at a networking event um and I as soon as I heard the idea about fire spraying I thought it was fantastic and um, so we we started working together a little bit on it um back then and then since we've got this great new developer involved, yeah, been been much more involved in in working with Charlotte on ThriveSpring. Terrific. Um, the ThriveSpring website that I saw had several different major subheadings, and I, I thought maybe going through those would provide us with some props to think about this a little more in depth. Uh, obviously, though, there'll be a lot of overlap between these things. But uh, one of the, the first one I saw was community assistance, something that can be explored on the site. What do you mean by community as- assistance and why is that important to have up front? Uh, just pulling the site up now. <laughs> so <Okay>. it's actually <laughs> so the first one is actually community projects. OK, do, community do, projects. you mean the menu at the top, right? No, like chunks on the screen is what I saw. So the different oh, okay. types of projects. Yeah, different yeah. types of projects. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, um, so that would be, so, I sh- so let's just back up a bit and talk about the community projects feature and Please. then, then the community assistance uh, part will make sense. So, so the very first feature that we built was the community projects. So this is where people can post projects. Um, it doesn't even have to be, it, it could be a brand new idea for a project it could be an ongoing project or it could be a completed project if you just want to share like hey this is what we did this is what worked for us kind of thing but uh yeah so it doesn't have to be anything that's established already it could just be like hey should we um get a rainwater harvesting project going in the beaches part of toronto anything like that and so the projects allow the projects feature allows people to say what it is that they're wanting to do and request volunteers or participants, funders, resources, anything like that, and, uh, and then just get, get people involved. And so the types of projects that people can, can create include uh, food, food production and, and distribution. So that, that would include, um, so, you know, locally growing your own food, but also, you know, food rescue initiatives, that sort of thing water projects such as um, rainwater harvesting or water recycling, Um, basically anything that you need to survive, anything that is going to keep your community going. And so, uh, so there's local, you could do local energy projects. Um, You could create a new emergency response team. And then, so when it comes to community assistance, um, this isn't so much connected to disaster response, but just as it, it, it does, I think, come under the sort of umbrella of, of community resilience. You could create a project that is, you know, helping your, you know, like say during, during COVID, a community assistance project could be buying groceries for seniors who, who are not able to, to get out to the grocery store. 
So, so there's a, a lot of things that could, could come under community assistance. Um, yeah, so that's, there's, there's about 12 different type of, types of projects that people can post at the moment. Um, and, and so, which it, it, this could expand in the future, but that's what we've got so far. How do you choose those 12 categories? Are they based on what people are suggesting or do you have an idea in mind in terms of what the basic categories are? We had an idea in mind when we created this. And so we're, we're very open to people if they, if they say, oh, you should also create a project or project category for, for, for something else that we haven't thought of. We're very, very happy to do that. I should have a list of all the different project types actually at the moment. So you can, so there's also, Actually, I'm going to bring up that email that I sent to the Ontario Depth Group because that has all of the... Well, um, while Charlotte's pulling that email up, I think as well, it's maybe good to say that we we kind of got those categories from looking at different examples of all the brilliant work that people have been doing um, and, and drawn inspiration from that. So we've got some really great examples of of people and organizations who where the projects are live on the site as well so people can go on and have a look at what is going on in their area or their their kind of focus of interest and draw some inspiration from that and where we haven't got people signed up to specific projects yet we've um we've created some examples on there that we've seen to inspire other people. newspapers or real life that yeah. we thought wow that's brilliant wouldn't that be fantastic if we all had that in our local community so people can go on there and have a look and think oh actually that would be great where I live and then they can start their own project or like Charlotte said they could just set up a project and say hey I've seen this this looks fantastic does anyone else want to get involved because it's that starting point of just connecting people like the the spark in the fire that can be really really tricky um, yeah, so it's got an inspirational we function as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and this is why uh, we're we're giving people the option to to post um, completed projects, so that you know somebody in Japan could 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 post. Not at the moment, it's not open to Japan, but somebody in the future, when it's open everywhere, uh, could could say, okay, we set up a project for um, community energy. This is how we did it. These were the big challenges that we faced here. These were our successes. This is what we wish we had known from the beginning. And then other people on the other side of the world who want to, to create a similar project rather than reinventing the wheel and just learning from scratch how to do it, learn from these other projects that are already out there. So I brought up the, the list of project types. Um, so you could create a project for... Preparedness and mitigation, so that could include flood action groups, community emergency hubs, emergency response, and that would include uh, search and rescue teams or evacuation assistance, recovery groups, so that could be like post-disaster shop local campaigns or neighborhood cleanup crews, food production and security, uh, that would be local food production, community-supported agriculture, uh, surplus food rescue. And then water security, community energy, communications. So that could include wireless mesh networks and amateur radio. Transportation, which includes ride sharing and community transport. Um, local exchange, such as time banking and uh, local exchange trading systems, which has been shown to increase community resilience. It brings people together as a community when people are swapping stuff. Um, there's a good example of this in in, uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand, when there was the earthquake. There was a, a, a local exchange group that 
were able to um, really step up during the earthquake because they, they already knew each other. And so they had these connections in place. And then community assistance, as we talked about, and health initiatives such as uh, community mental health support. So, but we are open to adding, adding more project categories. Terrific. Um, you know, a question that comes up for me is around how human beings relate to the possibility of emergencies and disruptions. Because it seems like we have an emotional and cognitive reticence to take seriously the possibility that things could be disrupted. Uh, so we have to take that more seriously, think about it more, feel into emergencies in order to be prepared. But at the same time, we have to live in a way where we're not in an emergency mode, where we're able to um, not be pessimistic all the time, not be stressed, not feel urgent so that we can relax and restore and live our lives. How do you balance those two things? That's a really good question. And, and it's very true. You don't want to become obsessed with the idea of things going wrong in emergencies because then you're not really living. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to ha have your stick your head in the sand and not be conscious of, of you know, the different disruptions and, and emergencies that, that can take place. So I, I personally, I think it's good to just have sort of an, rather than trying to focus specifically on, on very specific potential disasters, unless there is something in your area that is most likely to happen, I think it's good to sort of take an all hazards approach to preparedness. And then, um, and then not just, just sort of incorporate it into your life without making it the main focus of your life. So it's just sort of something like, you know, you, you, you put on a seatbelt every time you get in a car. It's not like you obsess about that. You still get in the car and you still, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's just part of life, but, but it isn't the main focus of your life. How do you strike that balance in your life, Sophie? I think that um, in reference to what you said about, you know, people having a, a, a reticence to, to think about disasters and emergencies, I think that in the, the COVID pandemic has been a really clear way that has, has illustrated that for us, that actually, oh, things can go wrong and, and that can lead to disruptions in the supply chain. And that means that actually this week, Something as simple as, you know, every week I go to the supermarket and I buy this, but actually this week it's not in stock. For a lot of people, that would have been a big shock and something that they haven't thought about before. So I think now is a really good time or opportunity to start having these conversations and, and because it's fresh in people's minds and they've, they've had some, some form of experience of that. So I think that that's why Thrive Spring is so, so relevant right now. I think that from my experience and I know from the experience of many others, what really has helped through the pandemic and has been proven to help in, in disasters across the world is that community, the sense of community. And that's why that's something that we really focus on with Thrivespring is the community resilience. If you are working towards something like the mutual aid groups that, that sprung up all over the UK, um, in the, the early days of the pandemic, people were coming together and they felt like they had a sense of purpose and they were helping people. And that's really good for your mental health, your physical health, everything to feel like you, you know, you're, you're part of something, you've got support and you're supporting others. And also to go back to the, the community assistance projects that, that you raised, 
like it might not be something that you're doing within your community that is directly related to disaster response or preparedness, but it could be something like um, the example Charlotte gave of lift sharing or just building connections and networks within your community that is invaluable then if there is an emergency because you know who to go to, you know who's vulnerable. So that's a way of preparing without directly um, thinking about it and, and stressing about it. So those those things are really important. But then things that are, are more directly related, like uh, search and rescue teams. And um, again, it's all you're doing it with the team. You've got a sense of purpose. You feel you feel more prepared. So I think for me, it's, it's that community and it's doing things together is, is how you can prepare without without it becoming a really negative part of your life you're turning it into something positive and productive yeah definitely and 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 it's been shown that um social capital which is connections with other people in your neighborhood in your community it increases survivability rates when something when there is a big big disaster you're you're in a much better position to survive if if you actually know other people because you're going to be able to help each other um, but if there is no disaster and you've and you're working on on initiatives or just anything that's going to be getting you out there and getting to know people in your community. Um, it's going to enrich your life and and uh, and yeah, just it helps you reduce stress. And then just as a bonus, it'll help you if there is a disaster. Charlotte, I first saw you in a, a game B sort of backroom chat. Um, I'm yeah. a little bit curious how you got there, but I just got off a call with Jim Rutt, kind of the founder of Game B. And yeah. there's, it's one of several overlapping communities of really interesting, really beautiful people all over the world who are, are thinking really clearly about how things could and should be different. But is there a danger of starting to feel like that's your community? Right, that you are in community with all these people who share your um, conceptual and ethical interests all over the planet. It's a beautiful thing, but that's not your community in the same way that people who live down the street are your community. And we seem to be in a situation where we're finding a lot of really meaningful community, but it's not in our actual communities. And that seems like a risk. Absolutely. And yeah, I've, I just, just a few weeks ago, uh, came across the game B website and it looks really interesting. Um, I don't, I still haven't quite wrapped my mind around it, <laughs> it's, it's, it, but it's, it looks really, really interesting, but, but yeah, that's kind of what, when I, when I was thinking originally about creating a platform for community resilience and preparedness, that's kind of what I was thinking like about what you said, like it's, you can have all these friendships online. But if something happens in your neighborhood, it's not going to help you if somebody in Australia is, you know, your best buddy. <laughs> They're not going to be able to, to do much for you. Um, so this is why I was thinking we, it's really important to make these connections locally so that people can actually work together um, on things to make their own local community um, stronger and, and more resilient. So, yeah, I think it's I mean, it's great, I think, to to find people online who have similar interests in this area and then share these ideas and, and, and help to spread them. But the important thing is actually doing stuff locally. I had a friend who told me one time she wanted to be more mindful of her food and I was teaching meditation at the time. So I assumed she wanted to bring more intentionality and vividness and consciousness to each moment of eating the food to really eat it. But no, she was thinking of 
what chemicals are in it? How was it transported here? How was it economically produced? What was the ethical relationship of the people doing the producing? Things like that. And it really helped me to start thinking about mindfulness in a, in a multi-domain sense. And what's been coming up for me lately is that the future is a thing that we is difficult to be mindful of. Right, I we often don't treat it as real as it could be. It's much easier to act on an impulse that's applicable to you over a five minute span than an impulse that's applicable over five months or five years. I'm curious, Sophie, if you think that you've gotten better over the course of your life in taking the future seriously, uh, of having it be a real thing that we can really act on in the present, and if you have any any guesses about how humans get better at treating the future as if it's a real thing. Cool. (laughs) I think, um, I mean, I'm perhaps not a useful perspective in that I'm not the average person in terms of that sort of thinking. Cause I mean, I've, I've studied a master's in climate change, so I am already the type of person that does think ahead and think, right, what can we be doing? What can we be doing today? But I mean, I, I made that decision to, to go and learn more about um, climate science because I was working in the field of disaster risk reduction and response. And I, I didn't feel like there was enough of that thinking ahead. Um, I thought, well, we know, (laughs) we know that, these are the disasters we're facing today and what is that going to look like in the future and I want to know more about that to understand it so that then I can bring that to my day-to-day work so I do I do think there is a lack of that I I think in kind of the past four years possibly that has been brought to our awareness more but again, we all live in our own our own bubbles and communities, and that's that's my experience from the people I know. But for the <laughs> for all the people outside of my my bubble, I don't know. It's very hard very hard to to say. Yeah, I'm not sure if I really have anything else <laughs> to say on that right now. I'm afraid. No, it's I'm not sure anybody really knows the answer to this <laughs> question. But uh, do you have any? Um you know intuitive responses to it charlotte like how do you how do we how do we get better at taking the future seriously and in particular the risks of the future of acting like they actually exist when they haven't happened yet i have the feeling that the pandemic is going to be is is already encouraging more people to think about the future Mm-hmm. Um, because it's been such a shock, even for people who knew that something like this was going to happen. I've known for the past 20 years, ever since I read a book on the 1918 flu, that this is going to happen at some point and it was going to be bad, but it's still a shock even when you're ready for it. For people who aren't ready for it, it's um, like a massive shock. But it's, but yeah, I think, I think it is, it has been uh, just naturally making, making um, people sort of reevaluate, uh, you know, our, dependence on the whole system on on the global supply chains and and critical infrastructure which is you know the, there's there's vulnerabilities in everything and 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 you know what if what if something else happened not another pandemic but what if there was you know a, a solar flare that affected the the electrical grid 
you know, if we're, we're so dependent, which is, which of course, every, every other sector of uh, critical infrastructure would go down <laughs> if, the, if the grid went down. And so I think, I think a lot of people are just becoming more aware of these vulnerabilities and that it just seems to me that there's just so many people who are, uh, who are, have a desire now to, to be somewhat self-sufficient. Um, we did a poll on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, just asking people if they would like to be able to, to be self-sufficient in terms of growing their own food. And there was, so you could say, yes, I would, I would like to be completely somewhat or mostly self-sufficient. Another option to answer was yes, and I'm working on it. And then the third one was no. And only 20% of people who replied said no, that they weren't interested. So 80% of the respondents, we had about 550, 560 respondents said that they either would like to be food self-sufficient or are already working on it. So it's probably aspirational for most people. Um, it's certainly aspirational for me. I'm not, I'm not there at all. But the fact that there are so many people who want that, I think says a lot about you know, like, I think it's a sign of the times that, that there are so many people that would just, you know, as Sophie called it, it's a millennial dream <laughs> to be, to have your own little homestead and, and, and be, be self-sufficient. We've had a lot of, um, a lot of conversations about this and kind of how to communicate and, and approach this with people, haven't we, Charlotte? Because I know that, that there is, the kind of almost you can there's stereotypes of people that that do kind of look ahead and plan and to to you kind of think there's people that are very you know they're, they're working in the profession that's that's what they do very kind of like science and policy focused then you get kind of the more extreme like disaster preppers who are building bunkers and things like that and then to the average person it's all quite inaccessible. It's difficult to understand. There's some negative stereotypes there. It's um, also probably like, where do you even start? I would imagine. Yeah, overwhelming, isn't it? And really what I think kind of the, the crux of, of where we kind of get to with that conversation is it's, it's around awareness. Um, we've talked about uh, storytelling, haven't we? Um, mm -hmm. and, and communication. And just really making it practical. So actually, yes, it maybe you don't want to be thinking about, you know, um, rising sea level in 10 years time. But what you can be thinking about is, do I know my neighbours and have I got their contact numbers? And can I be growing some vegetables in my garden? These kind of smaller steps yeah. um, and things we can do together that then instead of it looking seeming like it's really far off it's really overwhelming it's not relevant to me I can start doing those kind of small things that are enjoyable interesting positive so links back to the previous question I think really yeah this is why I think projects like Thrive Spring are so important because there is such a hunger for this and on the one hand people don't know where to start or which 
elements of it are most important to put their energy and time into. And on the other hand, they need something to sort of cut down the distance between them and actually engaging in projects because the, the interest is definitely there. I'm in that category myself. I aspirationally would like to, and yeah, I got a few plants in the guard I can eat, but I am in no way prepared (laughs) if anything happens. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think most of us would would fall into that category, myself included. I've, I'm, uh, and this is another reason why I, I I want to be able to to find people in my community to help me, uh, to, you know, to 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 grow a community food garden, because I don't have a green thumb. <laughs> And there's probably a lot of people like me who just are not terribly talented at growing food, no matter how how many times they've 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 tried it. Um, and so. Like and, it, and and the idea of any individual being self-sufficient is is a bit of a myth, but as a community, there's certainly a lot we can be doing together, and 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 then also just working with other people. Like it's just it it, it energizes you. When I when I have to do anything by myself, it's like oh, just you know, it's such a it's such a chore. But if but as soon as I'm chatting with somebody else about it. Like with, you know, when, when, when Sophie and I started working on Thrive Spring together, it just so much came out of our conversations because uh, it just, it's just, you know, it's just energizing. So yeah, this is, this is why I think that it has to be a community focus. Um, and, and even on a small, small level, it doesn't mean like your entire community. It can be just, just focus on the neighbors on your street to start off with. And that's what's so good about, you know, reaching outside of your usual bubble or your social circle as well, because you're going to be meeting people with a whole new set of skills and perspectives. Absolutely. And whilst you might not have a green thumb, like somebody a couple of houses down might be a professional gardener. <laughs> right. But, but then know. when I can, I can help them with figuring out how, what to get for your, um, your grab and go bag. If there's an emergency and you need to just, you know, leave the house really quickly. Some people will be like, I have no idea what to put in that. I can help with that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you might, you know, you might come across, somebody on the street who's got completely different needs um, that you wouldn't have even considered would be part of of preparedness and and resilience so that is why I think it is it's so important to not always be talking with and working with people who are within within your absolutely community resilience online bubble Bubble. yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, what if you what if you run into somebody and you're talking to them because they're a different kind of person than you? They have a different perspective and their perspective is I don't need to do any of this stuff. I just need some guns because then I can yeah. take what I want when the zombie apocalypse hits us. I've heard uh, somebody say that actually. And it seems like a a danger that might be prevalent in the United States where the idea of preparation often involves some kind of militarized bunker fantasy. Uh, but what do you make of that? Is that a real risk or do you think most people are basically uh, humane and collaborative under emergency conditions? I mean, we know that predatory people exist and we know that, uh, you know, they're not going to just suddenly disappear in, in, in a disaster. They are going to be uh, out there. But I think most people are not like that. Although I suppose if, if things are bad enough, uh, you know, people could just be desperate, but um, it's, it's, I think it's almost for me thinking about scenarios like that, it's, it's a bit overwhelming and it's, it's the kind of thing that could sort of just make you not do anything. It could be a bit paralyzing to think about scenarios like that. Um, I, I just tend to focus on, okay, well, what can I do? And, and, and 
but yeah, I, I, I think so what, when I've been on different sites over the years, focused on preparedness, just to learn about, you know, what other people are doing, people do talk about, you know, be, sort of being careful about who you share your preparedness efforts with in case somebody does, you know, keep that in mind and then just knocks on your door when, if there is a d- disaster. But I think, and I, and I totally understand that, but I think it's, I think it's more imp- for, for me, it's, and for Sophie, it's more important that we just publicly talk more about this. And we just say, look, if we all work to be more prepared and if we all work on community resilience more it reduces the risk for all of us so but it but it is a legitimate concern i think yeah i mean so, like we had a similar discussion recently didn't we about um the the potential of of if a particular person or street or community is obviously much more prepared than others does that then would that potentially make them a target and, you know, there's, there's always a risk and we can't take away every single risk. But I think what we generally were our, our line of thought and approach is that, you know, people, people can act in negative ways when they're desperate, when they're scared. Mm-hmm. Um, if you as a group, as a community, have the resources, if, you, if you've had these discussions, then that is mitigating that risk because those individuals who may have the potential to feel like they need to go and take somebody else's resources, if they're happy and they're comfortable that everybody is is safe and is going to be looked after, then hopefully they would be less likely to act in that way. Yeah, Yeah, if there's a greater abundance in terms of our preparations, then there's not the scarcity that would motivate people to do that. That's right. There's an interesting open question as to whether or not... um, Mm, you know, something like malicious skills or something like community protectors ends up being some part of community preparation down the road. There certainly are, you know, native communities that have mobilized protectors trying to look after water supplies that are in danger from various things. Uh, but I think that's that's got to be weighed against what you were saying, Charlotte, there is the the possibility that you know, that negative conflict future might be so distressing and so uncertain that it might sabotage our motivation yeah. to take any action in the present. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, I'm curious what, um, who both of you think are good sources on this stuff? Are there speakers, writers, pundits, philosophers who you really respect or get a lot from in terms of thinking about this stuff? Who, who's, who's an important source or, or symbolizes an important body of knowledge for you? Who do you go to? Who do you, who do you think is a good information stream in thinking about these things? Um, well, I first started re- reading about community resilience through John Robb. Um, he's an analyst who just tends to predict, uh, you know, what's going to be happening in the, the, the very near future. And um, I find his writing very interesting. And then also somebody on Bainbridge, Bainbridge Island in Washington. His name is uh, Scott James, and he started um, a nonprofit called Bainbridge Prepares, and it's about everybody on the island getting together and, and, and working to make their community as prepared and resilient as possible. And 
Um, they, they were just, they, they've done so much during the pandemic because they, I think they're probably like the most resilient community in the States. Like, I think they're just a, a wonderful, wonderful role model for what other communities can be doing. And it's just very practical stuff that they do. Like, you should probably interview him, actually. He would be a really good person to talk to. And yeah, there's a possibility that we might be working on something together in the future. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think, yeah, what they're doing on Bainbridge Island is just fantastic. What about you, Sophie? Who do you really appreciate as a, a source of thinking about this stuff? I think for me, really, it's it's the the local groups that um, that we've that we've come across that have self started um, and have have grown and have have done some really brilliant work. I mean, some of the projects that we have on Forest Spring already are a, a brilliant source of of um, inspiration and, and information so that's yeah that's that's who I tend to to follow and see see what they're up to and get ideas from there is there is so much information out there <laughs> one of the things actually that we've set up on five spring is is a resource hub because we we're constantly throwing articles and and websites at each other saying, oh my gosh, have you seen this? This is amazing. And, it can and, be and dog videos. Sorry? And dog videos. <laughs> oh, yeah, quite a lot of dog videos. <laughs> that helps like five a day. <laughs> the doom and gloom. <laughs> so yeah, we, we set that up because, yeah, because there's so, there's so much out there. It can be quite tricky um, to, to work out who, who you should be um, following and listening to. So yeah, that was our aim with that. I'm curious how you relate to politics because uh, a lot of the problems that we have to deal with (laughs) could be helped significantly by steering the economy differently or setting up social programs or building resilience and anti-fragility into the habits by which we're constantly regenerating our infrastructure. And yet there's a very real sense that government is, I don't know, both too idealistic and too corrupt and too slow and too averse to doing anything bold and too procedurally mired (laughs) and distanced from what people need to actually be a viable part of the solution. So I have both of those feelings. Like, how do we, how do you experience the usefulness of government, uh, the threat of government, and the uselessness of government? Like, how does it, how do we think about the political sphere when we're trying to maximize our potential preparedness for all kinds of things? Very good question. But (laughs) our agenda is that we, this is a, a, very non-political um, platform just because I, I, I think community resilience has has the potential to be common ground for people on the left and the right. And there's just so few spaces that offer that. And, and I think if, if, if we were to, to, to start, you know, weighing in on different things on, on the left or the right, then it, it would just, it would then make thrive spring political and and that would sort of defeat the whole purpose of it because i think that like going back to what we talked about before the social capital and the connections i i think that might be the most important thing of all if, if something really catastrophic happened and um you know it's 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 your neighbors that are going to be the ones um you know 
if there's an earthquake, you know, pulling you out of the rubble or something like that. It's, and so it's, it's, it's really important that we are able to just work with our neighbors, no matter what their politics are. Um, so, yeah. So the risk of political polarization, undermining connections between people and communities is too great, even yeah. though politics could have a role in these things. We can't really get into that too much. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a, I mean, there's obviously a place for it and, and those discussions should absolutely be happening, but we've decided that Thrive Spring isn't the place for that. There's the rest of the internet for that. <laughs> there's Twitter for that. <laughs> you know, um, emergencies and instabilities and changes of all kinds of scales are partly predictable and partly surprising. There will be weird outliers there will be black swan events and there will also be a lot of stuff whose trend lines we can already observe and pretty much guarantee are going to happen so what's your sense what does the mid 21st century look like what's the what's the landscape we know about that we definitely need to be preparing for here in the next couple decades just get my little crystal ball here (laughs) (laughs) i don't know gosh i mean i know Sophie's uh, f- focus would be very much on, on um, climate-related disasters. Um, I also worry about, uh, which, which is connected, um, biodiversity collapse. I've just been recently learning about that. Um, that's, that's uh, <laughs> at the same time, I, you know, I, there's part of me is like, I, I, I worry so much about young like children and teenagers who get so overwhelmed thinking like that, like their features, they are, there's no future. They're just, they're just, it's just doomed. And so I don't want to contribute to that <laughs> in a way, even though this is all stuff that needs to be talked about. Um, it just, it, it, yeah, it really worries me about, about how, um, especially like now going through the pandemic and then what do they have to look forward to when the pandemic's over, you know, like, yeah, it's just, um, I, I think we could have, a, I, th- I think it doesn't have to be a, a, a all doom and gloom in the future. I think that there's a lot we can be doing now to improve the quality of our lives and be not harming the planet. And yeah. I want to I come back to the feeling of doom, but first I want to hear if, what Sophie's sense of of the mid 21st century looks like what, what might happen and what's almost certainly going to happen that we should be preparing for. Well, I mean, we've got, we've got the IPCC report, so we've got a pretty uh, good idea of the the projected pathways. Um, (laughs) Try and try and very hard to be positive. (laughs) In our relationship, Charlotte is definitely more the the more <laughs> positive, and then I'm I'm a little bit more doom and gloom. So I mean, it's we know it's it's not going to be plain sailing. It's going to be difficult. Some things at this point I understand to be fairly unavoidable. We're a little bit too far far down the line, but that doesn't mean that there's not things we should be doing today and and every day to 
it's it's not a done deal. It's not a done deal that, you know, that there's going to be huge temperature increases. There's going to be <clears throat> increases in the number of disasters we're seeing. There's still, in my opinion, there's still time. And it's quite, I think, if we if we give in to that and think, oh, this this is what our future looks like, we may as well just <laughs> get on and 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 do what we want to do right now. I think that's quite dangerous. I think that's right. the element of hope is essential. Yeah. And understanding again, understanding the science, I think, is so important because it is it having studied it myself, it's no, I know it's really inaccessible. It's for most people to understand the nuances of what is likely to happen what isn't likely to happen it's 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 really tricky for the average person to to wrap their head around that it's really tricky for me to wrap my head around it and and I (laughs) have studied it for years so I think and understanding and having an appreciation of the fact that yes the science is telling us that these things may happen um are are likely to happen there's other things that are are somewhat likely to happen and and we we can make changes and what we can do can affect us and our community and not get too overwhelmed by the fact that you know the (laughs) the 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 planet's gonna end because what's what is the use in that we can we can think about what we can do um what what our kind of circle of influences and make positive changes there and I think yeah I can't I can't say what I think the the future is going to look like because I don't know I just think I like that you brought up scientific uh, communication and scientific literacy because it does seem like there's a big problem of technocratic bureaucratic uh, approaches and knowledge dissemination which doesn't really communicate to people in a meaningful way leaving them either ignorant or abstractly worried or rejecting it or approaching it in a mythological fashion yeah there's there's a real gap in how the actual details of understanding our situation are being disseminated but we we're coming around this emotion question quite a bit it seems like because i'm I worry on the one hand that people will be unmotivated by pessimism, but I also worry that uh, optimism often goes in the wrong direction or becomes superficial and also can be demotivating and doesn't allow us to really update ourselves emotionally about the situation that we're in. I've always been a very like almost ridiculously optimistic person. And that's been changing a little bit. We, we have kids in the house and they, they make jokes like they've only got 20 years left. Aww. And as a caring adult, you immediately want to intervene and, yeah. and correct that. But at the same time, I, I do want them to confront it and wrestle with it. And I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen either. And in the last year, sitting with that and letting it break my heart in various ways and going, oh, there's a lot of stuff we're not going to be able to solve. There is this balance of preparation and mitigation. And, you know, there's still always opportunities to change the direction we're going. At the same time, a lot of things, and we don't know exactly which ones they are, are locked in. And part of accepting that and working on that might be uh, emotionally allowing yourself to 
really deeply feel like we failed, really deeply feel like we're in something we can't get out of, right? That that's, that's a way to start. That's one way to start facing it. Just like hope is a way to start facing it. It's yes. not really a question there. I was just a confession. No, it's very <laughs> difficult and it's, it's really heartbreaking, isn't it? That there are young people feeling that way and thinking yeah. that way. And, and to some degree, I mean, oh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, to some degree, I think we should be thinking, oh, yeah, us and, and past generations, we need to step it up because we owe it to the younger generations to to give them a future a future worth living it's very difficult because a lot of people don't feel and quite rightly don't necessarily have that individual responsibility like are not are not individually accountable for for the impact that we've had um in the world <laughs> as a whole and the planet um but yeah, I, I do, I do see, I do see a point, and I do feel personally, for me, it's it's a real motivator to want to see, to see a good future for young people. I mean, the when I was going through um, the my my masters in climate change and feeling really like hour after hour of oh gosh, is that really going to happen? Oh no, and then you know walking out of university and seeing the the school strikes the youth school strikes and then that was an immediate pick me up for me thinking wow like there is there is hope because look at all these incredible young people out with their placards at their age i would have been absolutely clueless <laughs> been playing pokemon or something and and they're out there and they're they're so savvy and and aware and passionate and i think that's where I draw my hope from. I just want to say, I, I, I also think a future, a future worth living in, involves um, a, a society that isn't polarized. I mean, it just, that is something that scares me. And that is something that I, I think about, you know, what is life going to be like in the mid-century? If we don't get off this track that we're on with this polarization, like... Uh, that's to me that's almost like a bigger existential threat like it's just it's it's um it, yeah it, it's it's mind-boggling uh, the way people can look at you know basically half the country that doesn't vote like them and just sort of demonize and dehumanize them that just that terrifies me i think that's just um i think that and that is something that all of us today can be working on we don't have to contribute to that. We, we, do, we just don't have to. And that, and that is why we are, our tiny, tiny, tiny little contribution is, is having this platform that is about hope because it's about people coming together to work together on projects to make their communities more resilient. And politics are absolutely not welcome simply because politics have become so dehumanizing. And to have a resilient community, you have to be able to just accept the other people in your community with all the different diverse views and, uh, and, and work together and, um, and, and just not just, just put all that other stuff to the side. And, and, and uh, I just don't know what else we can do. We, we have, we, 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 yeah, I think that is something that we can be doing today is not contributing to the polarization. 
Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> These are tough conversations. I, I appreciate having them. Um, what's the ideal next step for Thrive Spring? If everything works out, if there was a, if you suddenly had more resources and more time to devote to it, where would it go next, ideally? Well, I mean, there's lots of features that we want to um, build and add to it, um, but it's we need people to join before it makes it worthwhile adding more features. Um, but so ideally people will join and then we will be adding, um, we, we want to create a, a feature called the community help board, which is uh, where people can actually offer and request assistance, urgent and non-urgent assistance during emergencies. So the, the community projects is for working on things to make your community stronger, but it's all folk feature focused. The help board is about, right, there's a hurricane coming. I need to, uh, you know, see, see what my, um, my community needs at the moment right now before, before the hurricane gets here, that sort of thing. Uh, there's a, there's quite a few features that we, we, if people were to just join, <laughs> we would, there's just so many, so many things that we would give them. <laughs> yeah. We've got so many ideas in the pipeline of, lots of things that we from our own experiences and from from other people's experiences of emergencies and disasters and um, seeing what's missing what's not out there and what would make things so much easier if if if, if it was on it, a platform the, yeah, yes for sure yeah for sure um yeah so so much exciting stuff <laughs> we just we're in the very early stages still um it's like bit you know chicken and egg because people are are hesitant about joining a new platform when there's not too many people on it and using it but then people aren't going to be using the platform if there's not many people on it so we're at that stage at the moment we're just yeah. trying to raise awareness um Do you know what we need we need one tweet from elon musk <laughs> <laughs> that's what we need and then people will come <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know Charlotte's got to go in a couple of minutes. Um, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that seems important on this? Is there anything, you know, lurking in the back of your mind or bubbling up in the conversation or have we covered it all appropriately for the moment? <laughs> I can't think of anything now, but I'm sure I will in 10 minutes. <laughs> Sophie, do you? I think maybe just that we're, um, We've always said, just as with, you know, building communities, we are trying to build a Thrive Spring community that then helps and um, support other communities. We, we really want to take an approach that is we're, we're building Thrive Spring with people, not for them. Um, so when we're, we're talking to people like you um, or anyone we come across, is, we're just so really keen to get any feedback any thoughts um as yeah. you mentioned those gaps because we don't know all the gaps um and every time we speak to somebody else we get brilliant ideas and we think oh yeah that's something that we need to be doing um so just we're really really open to to feedback and suggestions well yeah. fantastic it's been very nice speaking with you uh i encourage anybody listening or watching this to check out thrive spring and get involved and i um, I want you both to keep going forward with this because it's the kind of thing we need to be doing. <laughs>
Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great to meet you and talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.